Welcome to the 29th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. My name is Stefan and I'm part of the technical support and marketing team of Active Motif. Our special guest for this episode is Isabel Mansoui from the ETH and the University of Zurich. And I'm happy to talk to you now. Thank you, Isabel, for joining me today. Please let me quickly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD in developmental neurobiology from the University Louis Pasteur in Strasbourg and the Friedrich Miescher Institute in Basel, Switzerland in 1994. You then moved, to, moved on to do a postdoc at the, cancer, at the Center for Neurobiology and Behavior at Howard Hughes Medical Institute at Columbia University, New York. Then in 1998, you moved back to Zurich and became assistant professor in neurobiology at the Department of Biology at the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology. Then in 2004, you became professor at the Brain Research Institute at the Medical Faculty of the University of Zurich and the Department of Biology of the Swiss Federal Institute of Technology in Zurich. And in 2007, you became the managing director of the Brain Research Institute. And since 2013, you are full professor at in neuroepigenetics at the University of Zurich and at the ETH in Zurich. A question I like to ask uh, every guest to start off our little podcast is, how did you become interested in biology in the first place? And then, of course, uh, in pursuing a career in science. Uh, yes, hello, and thanks very much for the uh, invitation. Um, you don't really decide to become a biologist. Uh, I think in my case, at least, it was a, a long and progressive uh, process. Um, I... I trained initially as an engineer in, in biotechnology and molecular biology. I was very lucky to uh, join a, a new school at the time, uh, which is a school of biotechnology in, uh, in Strasbourg. And there it was at the beginning of uh, genetic engineering. Uh, so it, uh, it, it was teaching molecular biology and how to manipulate genes. Um, really at the beginning of the uh, transgenesis and uh, knockout uh, technologies. And th I think that's what really uh, shaped my uh, thinking, my scientific thinking, and uh, the fact that I really think from a molecular perspective, from a mechanistic uh, perspective. Um, and at the time already, I, I was uh, interested in, in physiology in general. Uh, and little by little, I realized that uh, the brain and neuroscience is, uh, is what is uh, the closest to uh, my interest. Uh, and, and again, it, it, it was a, a progressive uh, process. I was driven by my interest in transgenesis uh, when I wanted to do a PhD. I wanted to learn how to generate uh, transgenic mice. Uh, and a bit by luck, uh, I, uh, was, uh, I had the chance to, to do a, a training in a lab uh, who was uh, working on the, the developmental of the brain. And that's when I started to associate, you know, the molecular perspective of brain functions. And then um, I became mostly interested in, in learning and memory. Uh, that's why I did a postdoc uh, in this field. Uh, and not really, indeed, I ended up not working on memory itself, but on forgetting. <laughs> because at the time, uh, almost nothing was known about uh, forgetting. There was lots of research done on a signaling cascade involving, involving protein kinases in the formation and the, the storage of, of uh, memory, but uh, almost no one was interested in, in uh, forgetting. Uh, so that's when I started to work on protein phosphatases in, in, uh, in learning and memory. And then always keeping in mind that uh, the whole body, not just the brain, but the whole body is important for, for brain functions. Oh, yeah. 
So yeah, you you already took the the switch to your science. Uh, so you already mentioned that your areas areas of research include the epigenetic basis of complex brain functions and how behaviors are acquired and transmitted across generations in mammals. And I want to start in the year 2008. There, you and your team published a paper called Control of the Establishment of Aversive Memory by Calcineurin and CIF-268. Um, those are two factors that are uh, influencing this process and how are they working together in this, in the establishment of memory or in the process of, as you said, forgetting. They are part of a complex uh, signaling cascade which starts by calcium uh, at, uh, at, at receptors in neuronal cells and which ends up uh, at the chromatin, at the level of transcri transcription factors. So it's, uh, you see, it's, it's a cascade which captures, uh, which is initiated by a signal which is captured outside the release of neurotransmitter, which activates a, 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 new, a receptor on a postsynaptic uh, neuron. And this uh, opens calcium channel which where, where calcium enters the, the neuronal cells and where calcineurin is activated. And then after a long cascade, uh, signaling cascade, it ends up in the nucleus at the chromatin with a, a, a immediate early gene like a ZIF-268. Uh, so it's really exemplary of um, the, the complexity uh, of the communication between the outside, outside of neuronal cells and the chromatin itself. Uh, so this particular paper was built in two phases. We had the first story with calcineurin uh, and an independent story uh, with uh, uh, ZIF-268. Uh, and at some point, uh, due to uh, reviewers or the paper was initially rejected, we had the idea to combine these two stories. It was very fortuitous. And then these two, two, two stories, which I had never thought of together, made a lot of sense together uh, and uh, that could explain in part some of the mechanism of the uh, establishment of aversive, uh, aversive memory. So calcineurin is then the beginning and CIF-168 is the end of this cascade? Somehow, yes. Yeah, there is a lot of things in between, uh, yeah. <laughs> but it's somehow one of the ideas of these uh, signaling cascades, which ends up uh, modulating uh, things at the level of the chromatin. You then looked further into the the function of CIF-268 uh, and in 2012 uh, you and your team also investigated the influence of dynamic histone marks in the hippocampus on this process. How is this influencing the function of CIF-268? Oh, there is uh, no real direct link and uh, this study on uh, histone modifications by protein phosphatases uh, was kind of independent. Uh, But we were researching, we were interested in the cascade of protein phosphatases as opposed to protein kinases. So phosphatases, they dephosphorylate many different uh, substrates and they uh, um, counteract uh, protein kinases which were known to uh, be necessary for the formation of memory. And uh, one of these protein phosphatases, which is downstream of calcineurin, calcineurin is a calcium-dependent phosphatase, which is right uh, next to the, she's, it, it's uh, part of the complex uh, at the level of uh, um, receptors, postsynaptic receptors, like an MDA receptors, and uh, protein phosphatases, phosphatase is, protein phosphatase 1 in particular, is downstream of calcineurin. So PP1 is part of this cascade I was mentioning uh, before. And PP1 
um, was known uh, in other fields in cancer, uh, for instance, to be a chromatin binding protein. So it was found, it's found everywhere in synaptic terminals, but also at the chromatin. So it's when we thought, oh, well, it's, if it's there, perhaps uh, it has an influence on uh, certain genes which are involved in memory. Uh, PPN was also already known to be able to modulate uh, some uh, epigenetic marks uh, in, in certain cells. Uh, so that's when we, we had the idea of uh, manipulating PP1 and looking at the consequences on, on histone marks, uh, I mean, first phosphorylation, but also acetylation and methylation. And it's when we, we uh, realized that uh, indeed it's a cascade of events PP1 binds uh, on specific genes, dephosphorylates uh, specific residues on protein histones, and it acts uh, somehow as a cascade, probably by combining with uh, epigenetic uh, enzymes or different members of epigenetic machinery. Uh, so it's, it's, it really participates to the epigenetic code, to the histone code of uh, memory genes or genes which have to be shut down or shut off uh, for uh, and, and induce uh, forgetting. Uh, you mentioned the histone code and one modification I came across uh, when reading through your papers was H4K5 acetylation. And this is a modification that is, at least to, uh, to my knowledge, I, I haven't come across this uh, modification very often be uh, because it doesn't seem to um, yeah, be influencing many processes in cancer or something like that. Is it a Specific to neurons, or how do, would you characterize this uh, modification? Yeah, no, I don't think it's specific to neurons. It may be specific to, speci to certain codes which are important on, on certain genes at a certain time. Uh, we, we never really looked at specific. Of course, when you do, um, when you analyze uh, epigenetic marks, you use uh, specific antibodies, and then you, you are looking at certain uh, modifications. But we always thought, as a, a in in the globality, so a, a combination of uh, of histone uh, marks. Uh, and I think it's it's the principle of the histone code is that depending on the status of the cell, depending on the signal, or depending on when you look at uh, these epigenetic factors, they may be differently uh, modified with different uh, uh, type of modification, whether acetylation, phosphorylation, or um, um, other types of, uh, of, of modification, utilization, and uh, there is a lot of uh, yeah. different modifications. So this one in particular, no, I don't think it's uh, specific to... Uh, to neuronal cells, uh, it's just a part of a, of a additional of a code okay. uh, that is uh, present probably in, in different cells. Yeah, when we move on to 2016, uh, you also had a paper in Nature Communications, and there you looked at the influence of microRNAs in, in the formation of long-term memory. Um, what did you found there, and how? I mean, microRNA is now a different level again of uh, epigenetic information. How did it influence, or does it influence the? long-term memory. Yeah, this paper was a follow-up of, uh, of previous uh, findings that, again, PP1 can modulate uh, a certain number of genes in neuronal cells in relation to memory formation or memory loss. And among these genes, there was a cluster which is coding for different microRNAs. And uh, that's the, the, the study was uh, characterizing this uh, microRNA cluster uh, as one of the targets of, uh, of PP1. And we demonstrated that if you manipulate this cluster in particular, you can somehow recapitulate uh, what PP1 uh, is doing. So it's, it's one of the um, 
potential epigenetic mechanism or modes of epigenetic mode of action of uh, of PP1 via uh, microRNA. Yeah, so this this PP1 and all this cascade seems to really influence all levels of of uh, epigenetics. It's uh, histone modifications. It's now microRNAs, and you also looked at TET proteins and and their product five uh, HMC. So mm -hmm. this is is this cascade really influencing the whole levels of of epigenetics? Yes, probably. Um, it's it's quite complicated. Uh, but because this cascade has different members, which may be found in different at different places on the chromatin, may be active at different times, uh, there is a, contrib a multiple contribution uh, to, through different uh, mechanisms. And you know, memory-like uh, behavior involves many different genes, which are regulated via different um, epigenetic factors differently at different time. Uh, so I think you need this complexity, this diversity uh, to be able to, uh, to, to, to keep this flexibility and these, uh, these dynamics um, in, in the genome. So this 5-HMC, is this like the final product and the final then uh, layer of information? Or does it go further? Like Because 5-HMC can be processed to 5-FMC uh, for mil cytosine and then even uh, further. Um, do those modifications also play a role in this? Or is the 5-HMC really then the final um, product in the uh, methylation context? Yeah, uh, I mean, it has become uh, a whole field, indeed, uh, hydroxymethylation. Uh, I, I'm not working on this uh, really anymore. Uh, I'm not working on memory anymore, actually. But um, what I know, at least when I stopped working on this, the state of, of research was that uh, 5-HMC may be involved. Um, but maybe, it, I think it's both. It can probably be a, a signal which uh, regulates uh, gene or gene activity itself, but it may also be an intermediate. Uh, well, it's an intermediate uh, uh, with 5MC itself, but uh, it's part, I think it's, it's part of a, of a process of uh, demethylation, uh, although it's, it's believed to play a role uh, on its own. Uh, it's, it's very abundant uh, during embryogenesis and in, uh, in, in the early embryo, actually. So... Um, I guess it may be still a little early to know exactly what are the different uh, functions of uh, 5-HMC. So you already mentioned it that you stopped working on memory formation because you turned to epigenetic inheritance of, of those traits. And um, in 2010, you and your team published a paper called Epigenetic Transmission of the Impact of Early Stress Across Generations. Uh, and uh, yeah, at least in my opinion, uh, behavioral experiments are all but trivial, right? I mean, they are really complex and you have to take everything into account. Um, could you briefly explain how your experiments in this area look like? I mean, it, it's, it's if you have to have early stress, this is one thing and then you have to follow it on in the in the daughter ten generation. So uh, how do those experiments look like? Uh, it's a complicated experimental plan which takes uh, a lot of time. Uh, the question we were asking at this, at this time, I said that I stopped working on memory, but I've been working in parallel on memory and epigenetic inheritance uh, for almost uh, 20 years. Uh, and uh, initially I was only working on memory and I started to work on epigenetic inheritance, which at the time, uh, around early 2000, was not even a discipline, an existing discipline. Uh, but we were, uh, yeah, in, in, 
we, we were working on epigenetic inheritance without knowing that we were working on epigenetic inheritance. And uh, my research on epigenetic inheritance slowly became more, uh, more and more important uh, and more and more um, intellectually stimulating and exciting. Uh, so at, uh, and, and, <clears throat> and my research on memory was decreasing uh, at the same time, so that's where there was a, a kind of this this transition. But um, initially, the question we were asking was whether uh, experimental uh, um, life experiences can modify behavior, and whether this could eventually uh, modify the behavior of the of the progeny. Uh, so, in developing a paradigm to test this idea, we had to have a conditions to expose mice to a condition which was uh, severe enough to modify behavior consistently, strongly, and uh, strongly enough to also affect the progeny. Uh, so we spent some two years, a year or two, to develop this paradigm. And uh, maternal stress or um, uh, postnatal stress is quite common manipulation. And usually uh, what people do is that they separate the pups every day at the same time for a couple of days. Or they may separate the pups from the mother for 24 hours. And uh, when we did, we tried this at the beginning and we realized that it's not really a very good paradigm of uh, stress because at least uh, the 57, uh, 57 uh, mice that we use are very good mothers. And uh, if you separate them from the pup every day, they will know that they will be able to tell. And after a couple of days, they compensate. They provide a lot more maternal care before the separation and after the separation. So ultimately, it could even uh, be beneficial for the pups. So we uh, had to find a way to uh, disrupt this uh, routine that was very quickly uh, established by the mothers. And for this, we uh, tried to, to have the separation unpredictable. So anytime during, during the day. And that was really the trick, the unpredictability of a separation. The chronicity, so it's every day for two weeks from P1 to P14, and uh, the uh, unpredictability. And also because in real life, uh, when there is physical violence, uh, maternal or parental neglect, or hectic uh, childhood conditions, the parents also, or the, the, the environment uh, is also, uh, or the, uh, care, the, care, the um, caretakers are also stressed. So that's why we, in combination to the unpredictable maternal separation, we also stress the mother unpredictably during the separation. So it was really, it's really this combination of unpredictability of the maternal separation and unpredictability of the maternal stress at the same time for two weeks that made the paradigm very strong, strong enough to alter behavior, metabolism, and fundamental things like bone density, or um, even we have recent data showing that cardiac functions are altered, and uh, this is the case uh, across multiple generations. There are some behaviors which we find still present in the, in the fifth uh, generation of the fathers which were uh, exposed to this uh, trauma. So after you um, separated the pups from the mother, um, what things did you look at? Um, was it molecularly or behaviorally? Um, so did you look at histone marks or what did you look at? Yeah, we, we did many different things. Uh, we, in general, we waited until these pups were adult 
And on the adults, we did the behavioral analysis, metabolic analysis. We did a lot of molecular analysis from brain, uh, liver, blood, sperm, uh, testes. Uh, we also did a few analyses on the pups themselves during the separation, um, during the trauma. Uh, and uh, we have also conducted many of these uh, combined uh, phenotyping uh, in the progeny and the the, uh, in the progeny across uh, generations. And in the molecular analysis, uh, we looked a little bit um, at, uh, well, we looked at DNA methylation, we've done a lot of uh, transcriptomic analysis, um, metabolomic, proteomic analysis. Uh, so we are really trying to keep a, a broad view of epigenetic regulation and considering uh, not just uh, DNA methylation, but also non-coding RNA. We did a little bit of work on histone uh, modifications in the brain and the, uh, and the germ cells. Uh, but yeah, we are really trying to keep the uh, global view uh, over what, what can happen. Yeah. So yeah, you just said that you're looking at the sperm cells and, and the content that is transmitted through uh, them. Um, this was done in a paper in 2014. And also you looked at the proteins, right? At the proteins that are, yeah, are like histones in, in the sperm cells. Um, yeah, you then also use the term protamine code. Uh, is the protamine code different than the histone code? And what uh, was or what is transmitted through the sperm cells? It's not known what is transmitted through the sperm cells uh, via protamine um, because uh, no one, as far as I know, has done uh, proteomic analysis or histone uh, modi uh, protamine modification analysis on sperm across generations. Uh, we, we did look at uh, histone and protamine post-translational modifications a couple of years ago in the sperm of adult males but it was not quantitative. It was just okay. a qualitative, um, which is tractable. You can, you can, it's not that easy, but you can do it. Uh, but to do a quantitative analysis of uh, these modifications on protamines and histone in sperm, uh, it's, it's, it's a bit challenging. And uh, we wanted to do it, but at some point, we, the person is responsible for this project left and we never revived okay. uh, this Okay, project. I see. So, there is no answer to your question of whether <laughs> there is a, a protamine code which uh, could capture uh, life experiences, keep these uh, signals or these changes in the level or in the, um, in the type of uh, modifications and uh, transfer this to the next uh, generation. Um, yes, I, it could be. It is a possibility. However, uh, it may be a bit challenged because, you know, proteins are intermediate uh, proteins in the chromatin of uh, sperm cells. Uh, they replace histones, and then after fertilization, they are replaced by uh, maternal histones. Oh, yeah. So how stable or what type of signal they could transfer, they could keep and transfer, is um, conceptually is a little bit uh, challenging. Yeah. You then also looked uh, further into epigenetic inheritance and looked at early life stress in fathers and how this improves behavioral flexibility in the offspring. Um, what I wondered uh, when I read this title is, is behavioral flexibility a good thing or a bad thing? <laughs> this is a, uh, It really depends on the conditions. Um, it's known in human that, uh, you know, you, you always say uh, what does not kill you make you stronger. It's a bit like this, you know, depending on the condition. You, if you take depression, depression can be a very negative 
type of behavior in our society. Because uh, you, I mean, depression, you, you, are, you lose uh, interest in into anything, you are not motivated and you isolate yourself. Uh, so the self-isolation in our society is, is not viewed as, as positive and it can be very uh, penalizing. However, you think if you think social isolation, which is uh, one of the major symptoms of, uh, of depression, can be beneficial if it can protect you from uh, from from the outside, from maybe a hostile environment. Uh, so it's you know behavior can can be uh, positive or negative depending on the conditions. Risk taking is a bit the same. Risk taking in a in a normal environment where you take risk and you get something that you would not have gotten without taking risk can be beneficial. But if the environment is dangerous, you take if you, if you are a risk taking person, you may uh, injure yourself. Uh, so behavioral flexibility is uh, is like this as well. Uh, it, it's good to be flexible, but that in some conditions you need to focus on a certain task to be efficient. Uh, so what is important in the in the field of trauma is that. Uh, People and, and uh, experimental animals exposed to trauma in early life, uh, they not, often they have many negative symptoms, like problems of behavior control, problems in cognitive processes. But in some conditions, in challenging conditions, this can help them or they, they can use their capacity to resist more to, to danger or resist more to fear, uh, to behave perhaps more positively uh, so it's it's really a, a little bit of, uh, of both depending on the conditions yeah. did you look at the chromatin level what factors and what um, yeah, modifications are influenced there in in the in respect to with respect to trauma yes uh, we looked at uh, some histone ptms uh, in the brain uh, at different genes like um, i mean very classical and Uh, genes you think of first when thinking about uh, stress, uh, glucocorticoid receptors and mineral corticoid receptors. And we found that uh, there are some uh, changes in the uh, histone marks there, but it's um, it's only a little, little bit of uh, information of, of something which is probably a lot more complicated than this. Okay. Uh, looking at histone PTNs is nice, but it's always, it's a bit restrictive because, uh, you know, there are hundreds of different PTMs, which can work in combination and which work also in combination with DNA methylation. So it's it's very difficult to extract some uh, information about the consequence that uh, one type or two types of, uh, of PTMs will have on gene activity or on on gene expression. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it would be a Yeah, it's a job on its own. Yeah, because uh, I think it would also be hard to discriminate between a cause or consequence, right? Exactly. Uh, yeah. Or, or is it just correlation, or is it really uh, causing the the effects? Um, yeah. Uh, yes, and in terms of tools to to be causal, uh, it's a bit limited for the moment. I mean, DNA methylation you can use a uh, CRISPR-Cas fused to DNMT, for instance, or TED to manipulate a certain stretch of uh, of DNA. But uh, to change, uh, to manipulate histone modifications, yes, you can do the same. Use DCAS9 fused to HDAC, for instance. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's still uh, really at the beginning of this type of uh, tools to assess uh, causality. Then also in 2014, you found that RNAs may play a role in transgenerational inheritance. Um, 
And we also saw this uh, a paper where they, um, I guess it was snails, where they uh, found some RNAs that might uh, transmit some memories uh, over generations. Um, what did you? What kind of RNAs were involved in your model, and uh, how do you think this works? We don't know exactly how this works, and uh, we don't know exactly which type of RNA is involved. But what we know is that uh, it's probably different types of RNA, uh, small RNA and long RNA. So in, in initially, uh, to test the causal relationship between changes in RNA load in sperm cells due to exposure, in this case, exposure to postnatal trauma, what we did was to extract total RNA from the sperm of males, which had been exposed during the postnatal life. So this is Many, many months after exposure, there are still changes in the uh, uh, transcriptome in the sperm cells themselves. So we extracted this total RNA and injected the total RNA into fertilized oocytes from controlled mice. Uh, so controlled fertilized oocytes. And then after injection, we transplant these injected uh, fertilized eggs into a foster mother. And uh, once the... Uh, Uh, pups are born, wait until they are adult, and tested their behavior and their metabolic uh, response. And we found that uh, similar symptoms to those observed in the maize, which were themselves directly exposed, were observed in these offspring. Also, in the offspring of these animals, which were rising from eggs injected with sperm RNA. Uh, so, which su suggested that total RNA itself carries some information um, about trauma that modulate or affect behavior and metabolism in the progeny and the progeny of the progeny. Um, then there were in the field of epigenetic inheritance, there, is the, there was the idea that microRNA may be involved. Um, I believe, I mean, it's not that. Our results show that microRNA alone are not sufficient to do the job because what we did then after injecting the total RNA, we redid the experiments Again, but by fractionating small RNA, so not just microRNA, but all the small RNA, less than 200 nucleotide, and all the rest, uh, so long RNAs, more than 200 nucleotide. And repeated this injection experiment, and what we found was that the animals arising from the eggs injected with a small RNA fraction, they did not really show any symptoms. I mean, they did show something with, which was not related to the uh, original uh, trauma symptoms. However, those animals arising from oocytes uh, injected with long RNA, the fraction of long RNA, they did show, they did recapitulate uh, symptoms, metabolic symptoms, a little bit of behavior, but not all the uh, symptomatology. So this clearly say, shows that The small RNA alone or the long RNA alone are not sufficient to recapitulate all the symptoms. They need to be together. Okay. Uh, we don't know why. We don't know what they do. But, uh, it, of course, there are multiple types of small RNAs, multiple types of long RNA, coding RNA, long non-coding RNA, retrotransposon, and so on. Uh, so it's a complex uh, mixture of uh, interacting RNA. Did you sequence them? Yes, we did. Uh, separately, the small and the long RNA, and we found many of them to be altered. Some are in excess, some are uh, not enough. Uh, so there is uh, a lot of uh, a lot of analysis uh, needed to <laughs> to yes. see what 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 there is. 
Okay, so um, to finish off this interview, I have two more rather general questions. Um, the first one is, um, did you at one point of your career face the situation where you have reached a dead end and did not know how to proceed to unravel what you wanted to know or to unravel the questions you wanted to answer? No, this never happened to me. It's, uh, I mean, be, maybe because I, I switched fields. Yeah. No, the field of epigenetic inheritance is very new. It's very conceptually. It's very. Um, <laughs> it's it's difficult, but it's um, extraordinarily uh, open and uh, diverse. So there are um, a lot of questions to still answer, right? <laughs> yes, super exciting questions. So on the contrary, I feel that there is a big mountain or big sea uh, in front of me, and I wish I would be only at the beginning of my career. Uh, because uh, I think there will be uh, work for, for many, many, uh, many years. But that's a good situation for your PhD students and postdocs, right? <laughs> Absolutely. However, it's a super difficult uh, field of, uh, of research. Uh, conceptually, because there is still, there is still some uh, resistance to the idea that uh, life experiences can influence people across generations uh, due to the dogma, to the genetic dogma. So we really have to fight uh, with our research, with uh, raising funds, uh, publishing uh, our, our papers. So it's, it's a lot more difficult than uh, than other uh, more classical fields. I would say, you know, I, I really can say this because I was in another field before uh, neuroscience uh, around memory. So I really can see the the difference. Uh, so it's it's a very interesting, it's passioning. But it's uh, it's it's challenging and it requires to be really to really believe in it and to really uh, I mean put your life yeah. into this. Yeah, this but field. but there is evidence arising, right? There is a study in C. elegans that shows that epigenetic memory can last like for 14 generations. There is this snail study with the memory. So and your work. So I, I hope this will still <laughs> this will help to to move the field forward. So. So in the last, I think if, yeah, if if one day people can demonstrate that this can also happen in humans, yeah, uh, that will be the de definitive uh, de demonstration, and that will convince everyone. But that will be uh, quite difficult. Yeah, but we are, yeah, we are working on so on 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 this, on on uh, humans or on human cells, or what do you mean by that? On on humans, I mean we have, uh, for instance, assembled a cohort of uh, people exposed to childhood trauma and uh, conducted uh, epigenetic, I mean, RNA analysis in blood, but also in sperm of, of men exposed to, to uh, trauma. Uh, of course, it will remain correlative because causality is, is very difficult to demonstrate, but at least that we can, uh, as much as possible, uh, validate the findings that we have in mice, uh, validate them in humans. Yeah. I know, lost my train of thought because I wanted to follow up on this. So is there a difference between male and female, so mothers and fathers, passing on the information to the child? Um, is it more mothers or more fathers that will pass on their, their epigenetic information? Or In our model, it's both. Both fathers and mothers can, uh, can transmit the uh, symptoms related to uh, trauma, postnatal post trauma to the offspring. Mechanistically, it's probably different because uh, sperm cells are different from all sites and uh, uh, spermatogenesis uh, is very different from all genesis. Uh, that's why there will be a lot of work to, to do uh, to look at this. But we, we have initiated a project a couple of years ago to really do this, compare 
sperm from traumatized males with eggs from uh, traumatized females and see how much, if there is any commonalities, just for instance on the transcriptome, and if there is commonalities, what is what are the genes? Are, are they common genes, common pathways, uh, common chromatin uh, positions on the chromatin which are affected in, uh, in, in both? Um, and what were the results? What did you find? Is it is that? Oh, we don't know. Oh, we don't know. So this is unpublished. No. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So we look forward to to reading from that. <laughs> So my last question in the last, uh, I think it's 35 minutes now, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or what you are particularly proud of or, or what we might have missed uh, and not have talked about in this interview? I think the most, uh, to me, the most important uh, achievements uh, was really to provide uh, evidence of the transmission of uh, symptoms across generations and to uh, now start to identify or to provide uh, mechanistic insight into this, uh, this type of uh, inheritance. Um, I think switching careers or switching fields is also something... Uh, which I think was, to me, is a, is a great achievement. I'm very happy that I did. <laughs> uh, I, I, it's, it was not totally intentional at the beginning. Uh, it was kind of intuitive and more uh, driven by, by what I really like. Uh, I did not expect at the beginning that epigenetic inheritance would be such a difficult field, uh, but I'm, I'm very happy to have uh, had the, the courage, in a way, uh, to switch uh, fields and uh, to, be, to have so much joy uh, and uh, daily excitement about uh, the research I'm doing despite all the uh, difficulties. Thank you, Isabel, for your time and for being on the show. My pleasure. Thanks very much to you. This was the 29th episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. Please rate, review and subscribe to our podcast so you never miss an episode. We are happy to receive your feedback on Twitter, Facebook or LinkedIn. We will read all your reviews and comments and give you a shout out on a future episode. If you have any further questions, you can also reach me at podcast.activemotif.com. For more great epigenetics content, Check out the Active Motif blog, Motivations, at activemotif.com slash blog. Thanks for listening and stay tuned.